The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Yes, it is. It is The Enviro Show with me, Nancy Richards. It's uh, said to be the greenest show on the station where we offer you not exactly a soft option, but perhaps a bit of a break from the sometimes rather ugly news, as we've just heard on the news right now. Well... Helping both uh, you and me understand the issues that are facing all of us and our collective future. Helping me do that this evening, we have in the studio uh, producer Kim Winter and at the controls, Lon Wabo Fani. And our focus tonight is pretty much celebratory, I have to say, as we hear about the good work being done by the Marine Stewardship Council in the face of a fairly desperate situation in our oceans where fish stocks, as you probably know, have in some cases been exploited to the point of collapse. Well, going to be talking to commercial manager of the MSC. He's Michael Marriott. He's uh, of the Africa office right here in Cape Town. And then after that, well, I guess it's sort of kind of cheers all the way as we speak to just a handful of the winners announced at yesterday's South African Breweries Environmental Media Awards. We'll be talking to the winner of the Nick Steele Memorial Award for the SAB Environmentalist of the Year. She's Mariette Lieferink. And sweeping the board, the Merit Award winner, New Media and Online winner in print and Makubu Ntombela and Ian Player Cup Award with Sipo King. So it would be nice to have a chat to him. After that, Notikle Izwani, she's a Merit Award winner in the category of radio and also winner in the category of radio, Minoshni Pile. So that's who we're going to be chatting to. So do prepare yourself with a bit of a round of applause. And don't forget, if you want to join in, you're welcome. If you'd like to give us a call at any stage, tell us what you think. The number is 0892102010, Kim's standing by. She'll pick up the call. Otherwise, you can find us on Facebook. That's the Enviro Show on SAFM. And if you want to send us a good old-fashioned email, we're at enviro at safm.co.za. The Enviro Show. Well, first up on the Enviro Show tonight, I must just share with you that I had the good fortune the other day to visit the MSC certified Three Streams Fish Farm and Smokehouse in Franchuk, as well as their rather tasty salmon bar in town. One of only two restaurants serving MSC certified fish in the country, let me tell you. Hope to hear a little bit more about them another day on the show. But MSC, you're wondering, MSC stands for Marine Stewardship Council. They're an organisation started back in 1997, doing their best to stop the rape of the ocean's fishes. A bit like Canute trying to turn back the tide. Well, is it too late or is it perhaps never too late to try? Well, the MSC has offices all over the world, and the one for Africa is right here in Cape Town, from where we have commercial manager on the line. He's Michael Marriott. Hi, Michael. Hi, Nancy. Nice to have you with us at this time of night. Thank you. So, the MSC, tell us a little bit more about it. It started back in 1997. Uh, because why? Uh, well, it started really in, in response to a collapse on the Grand Banks cod fishery in Canada, um, it wasn't the first fishery collapse. We have been aware of, of issues in fisheries management and overfishing for a long time. Uh, what happened in Canada was that more or less overnight, overfishing led to an absolute collapse of the fishery, and that resulted in 40,000 jobs lost. So really what it meant was industry realized that for the continuation of their businesses, um, they would need a sustainable supply of fish, and likewise the conservation organizations coming from the other side put their heads together with industry, and they decided if they looked at a, um, a market-based solution, so essentially trying to get consumers to preferentially buy fish from sustainable sources, they could turn around um, the way 
world fisheries is, is practiced. So what we're trying to do is to really, in the first instance, give recognition and reward to the fisheries that are already doing the right thing, and at the same time grow the markets for sustainably caught fish so that other fisheries are actually pulled into the program as well. Yes, we're very quick to blame the greedy fisheries, aren't we? But, I mean, the greedy fisheries are only supplying what demand requires. Absolutely. Um, It really comes down to consumer demand. To some extent, what the consumer buys is what he's being told is available and actually advised to, to buy. But... If we're not buying it, it's not going to be caught. It yeah. needs to make financial sense for fishers to go out on the water and catch something. It needs to make financial sense for all the seafood suppliers in the supply chain to provide it, and likewise all the way down to retail. Um, having said that, you know, fishing sustainably often requires more careful practices, so it can be a more costly business. And I think what, what seafood eaters need to realize is that sometimes the enjoying cheap seafood might be in fact enjoying unsustainable seafood. Mm. We need to put our money where our mouths are as well. Yes, but when you've only got a certain amount of pennies and you just, you, you know, it's the last thing on your mind, you're just sort of thinking, well, I, I, just, I need it and I need it and I need it cheaply, you know, so it's, it's quite difficult. But just going back to the collapse of the grand banks, I mean, that's a scary story that more or less overnight one whole uh, area which had been so abundant in the past suddenly collapsed. It's no coincidence that around about that time, I think the the fishing industry was sort of peaking. I mean, they've come up with all sorts of new and wonderful ways, new technologies, ways in which uh, they could identify where the fishes are. So, you know, the collapse coincided with man's cunning fishing techniques. Yes, it did. Um, What I think a lot of people don't realise is that the the oceans aren't equally populated with fish. Um, Fish will exist in areas that support their populations, so nutrient-rich areas, areas of abundant food sources and that sort of thing. Um, we've, become, we've been becoming more and more successful at catching fish, um, particularly after the Second World War with a lot of the sonar technology that came in. It's become very easy for, for fishermen and to use the technology to actually go out there and target exactly what they're looking for to find the shoals of fish and you know, catch whatever they want. Um, on the back of that, it's becoming more and more difficult for the fish to escape that. Yeah, yeah, so I was we, You know, fisheries management has a big responsibility, and we are aware of a lot of the issues going on. Yes, I mean, they, they don't stand a chance, really, do they? But, and it's not even as if they can really adapt, because if they, if they uh, you know, can only, only sort of uh, recreate or procreate in certain habitats, they, there's nowhere else for them to go. It's been happening very quickly. I think that's the thing. You know, evolution over a long time or adaptation over a long time is one thing, but we're talking um, a few decades. It's happened very quickly that we've become so successful. Obviously, the demand for protein now is increasing quite rapidly with the population, um, and we do need to find solutions to that. So, you know, we're not proposing to move away from eating fish. There are a lot of very successful fisheries out there, very well-managed fisheries. And really what we're trying to do is focus on um, the good news stories, those managers that are managing to do the right thing. In some cases, fisheries that have been turned around from near collapse into quite sustainable fisheries. So it's not all bad news. Yeah. I think people do need to be aware that there are those that are really well-managed and there are those that are not. And how to recognize that is, 
Give us an idea then of the extent of the good news, because from what I understand, there are, you know, less than 200 fisheries worldwide that have been that have got your stamp of approval. What do they have to do to get it? And why so few? Do they have to apply to get it or do, do you sort of target them and say, listen, guys, this is what you need to do? Uh, well, the 200 that have it represent about 7 percent of wild-caught fish for human consumption. So it's not an insignificant number, but it is a long way to go still. Um, it is a voluntary program. What, I mean, coming back to fisheries being, having to be economically viable, depending on where you're selling your product into and what market, the demand for environmentally, from environmentally conscious consumers for sustainable products is going to be very different. Um, generally, what they will do, it, it is a voluntary program, as I say, they will apply for certification if they feel that it's going to give them some sort of market advantage. Now, the 7% that are certified don't necessarily represent the only sustainable fisheries out there. There are some that are probably perfectly sustainable but haven't gone through the process of certification yet. Um, but to talk a bit more about what certification actually involves, we've got three key principles. Um, we look at the health of the target stock. So whatever species they are, are trying to catch needs to be in a healthy state. Then there are the wider ecosystem impacts, which are very specific to fishing gears, the geographical area they're fishing in, and that, the level of fishing activity taking place and that sort of thing. And then the third principle is about management and governance. Because mm. without that good management in place, there's nothing to control what is currently going on and new access to, to that same fishing area or the, the fishery. So those are the three key principles. It's based on guidelines that are set by the United Nations and Food and Agriculture Organization. And as you mentioned in your introduction, we're a global program, but while we're not the only certification program for seafood, we are the only one that is fully aligned with the United Nations guidelines. So generally we're considered to be the most credible um, of the eco-labels for wild capture seafood. And the benefit of getting certified is that it means that you then get your stamp on all their products, which, you know, feel-good buyers are going to buy knowing they're doing the right thing. That's right, yeah. Um, and as I say, it's very market-related. So we need the consumer recognition. It's a bit of a chicken-and-egg situation in a sense in that, on the one hand, we need consumers to be asking for the label, but they're not going to be asking for the label if the label's not already in the, in the, on the supermarket shelves because they're not aware of it. So there is an awareness-raising element that we, we, do some, you know, we do some work towards. Um, even though our primary function is to work with the fisheries to go through the certification. You know, the last principle that you mentioned, the efficiency one, there's, there's something to be gained, not just in sort of financial terms, but the huge, one of the things that we all know about with fishing um, is huge amount of wastage that, you know, the the bycatch that just gets dumped back in, and it just seems that it's such an extravagant way of fishing. Um, but that, that's one thing. What I w also want to get onto, Michael, is that, you know, all this in the face of small-scale and sustainable fisheries suffering enormously at the moment. I mean, not just here in South Africa, but in countries around the world, there are so many uh, communities who, who rely on fishery. Is there any chance that they may ever get certified, that there can be some sort of standard for them? So we're all on board with this. There is. Uh, it's an interesting question because 
our standard is essentially set up to to be available and accessible to any fishery, regardless of the gear type or the size of the fishery or anything like that. The realities are that proportionally the cost of going through certification is going to be greater for a one-man show than it is for a big industrial fishery. So we do have a, a program internally, um, the Developing World Program, and within that program we're trying to address the issues to make sure that the standard is still accessible to all fisheries. Uh, what we would normally encourage um, is for groups to get together. So rather than an individual to go to attempt to go through certification, is for a group targeting the, the same stock. So essentially uh, forming a cluster that can then share the, the difficulties of certification. It's not an easy process. Um, one of the difficulties for small-scale fisheries comes in the on the governance side, because in terms of um, leveraging support or actually having a voice in governance, it's a lot more difficult for a small fishery um, than for a larger industrial fishery that represents a, a big portion of GDP. Inter- just two last things. Interesting to know is that approximately 50% of the fish that we consume only only 50% of it is wild caught, as you put it. The other 50% is being farmed. So, MSC, are you able to uh, offer um, certification on both sides? No, not at the moment. Um, our certification is purely for wild caught. You, you're right. It's about 50% wild, 50% aquaculture now. Um, wild capture has been relatively static for the last decade or so with aquaculture fast increasing, so we expect that aquaculture production will overtake wild capture. Um, there's another program called the Aquaculture Stewardship Council, which has been started up by WWF, that will address the aquaculture side. The, the issue is that they're very different problems and um, solutions in aquaculture to what they are in wild capture. The sort of issues we're facing are very different, so you can't use the same certificate um, to look at the sustainability of a farming program. Yeah. The other question, I mean, lots of questions really, but just lastly, of these 200 odd uh, fisheries who have got MSC certification, I think, how many have we got in South Africa? How well are we doing here in South Africa? Well, we've only got one certified fishery in South Africa. That's the South African Hake Trawl Fishery. Um, it is our most important in terms of um, monetary value and export value. It's not the, the largest, but it's it's one of the largest ones and the most important. So, you know, we've still got to work with some of the others. We hope to get some more on board. But in a lot of cases, as I say, it can be a long process before you're looking at, at full certification. And before that, a lot of fisheries will enter what we call a, a fisheries improvement project um, where they're looking at certification as an end goal. Mm. But in the interim, they, they're setting time-bound milestones, and they'll normally work with a partner like WWF or the Sustainable Fisheries Partnership um, towards that, and that can be a number of years before yeah. they actually enter certification. So it's sort of like a nursery slope. It's a, it's a getting towards it. So we can, can we all, does that mean that we can all eat hake with a clear conscience? If it carries our label, yes. Okay, um, so we have to we, look we up very, for the label. Yeah, we're very careful that it has to carry the label because we have a, a second standard that addresses traceability through the supply chain, um, just so that anything that ends up on the retail shelf or with our MSC logo next to it on a restaurant menu can be traced back through the supply chain. Um, The reason I say only with the label is that 
if you take hake as an example, we don't only eat South African caught hake in South Africa. We also import from Namibia, from Argentina, and from various sources. Um, they're only certified fisheries. So, you know, I, I can't really comment on fisheries that haven't gone through certification, yeah, but yeah. from the MSC perspective, the only one of the hake fisheries um, in South Africa that is certified as the, the South African trawl fishery. So if you're going to eat hake, then look for the boxes with the MSC label on it. I certainly shall, and certainly will eat fish with a whole lot greater respect. I think one has no idea. You talk about, you know, where all our fish comes from, and it's interesting to know that never mind a fish swimming around in the sea, it's also flying around all over the place or, you know, bobbing around on, on uh, ocean-going containers all over the place because it's, it's, it's just extraordinary. Well, thank you, Michael, for all that you're doing for the world's oceans, and may your vision, the MSC vision, that eventually the, uh, the world's oceans will be teeming with fish once again, may that come true in our lifetime thank you and if anybody would like to know more that's uh, msc.org is your website that's right www.msc.org michael marriott thank you so much Take care. thanks Nancy. thanks a lot cheers Bye-bye. well how interesting was all of that michael marriott talking there about the marine stewardship council and if you'd like to know more once again msc.org we'll put that up on our facebook page if you'd like to check the link you're listening to the enviro show stay with us <laughs> The Enviro Show. Tis indeed the Enviro Show. Well, as I said, prepare yourself for a quick round of applause because next up we've got a whole clutch of winners from the SAB Environmental Media Awards. They were all announced yesterday at a function which I have to say had an extremely green backdrop. It was the Johannesburg Country Club. And the green theme was echoed on the table displays of the of the luncheon tables with plump sprouting bulbs, timber and bark, all sprinkled with what was said to have been pink Himalayan salt. So there you go. And a feast, the actual food featured every grain and microgreen known to the planet, as well as grass-fed grass beef and I'm assuming sustainably fished salmon. But all the visuals aside, what we were really there to do was to celebrate with the winners and listen to the wisdom of the speakers. And talking of the speakers, not least amongst them, and uh, as he said, probably for the last time he was uh, pulling out, was Dr Ian Player, involved from the start 25 years ago with these awards. How's that? And he declared that he will be fighting for the environment till my very last breath, he said. Wow. He also went on to relate two very moving dreams that he'd had and that had motivated him to keep going. One, that a young rhino once climbed onto his bed and laid his head on his pillow and wept. And he said, if you've ever heard a rhino crying, that is motivation in itself. And another, that he found that he, he found himself with his hand brushing against a candle. This is his dream. And he knew the candle was no good without matches, so he reached into his pocket and he found a box of matches and he lit the candle and he woke up feeling a glow of having done something really, really good. And rather nice was that he went on to refer to, of, or to, refer to all the award winners there as the candle bearers shining the light on the environment. What a lovely analogy. So, moving words indeed. So, going to talk to some of the uh, candle bearers, starting off with a winner in the Nick Steele Memorial Award for the SAB Environmentalist of the Year 2012, Mariette Lifferink. She is uh, CEO of the Federation for a Sustainable Environment, and she's also, incidentally, been named as one of the 100 most influential people in mining in Africa. Well, to explain all that, we've got her on the line. Hi, Mariette. Congratulations. Thank you very much, and good evening to you and the listeners. Thank you. Mariette, tell us a little bit about, well, I was going to say tell us about you, but maybe tell us first a little bit about the Federation. 
Yes, the Federation was formed in 2007. It consists of a loosely connected group of leading national and international NGOs and conservation organizations. Uh, one of the founding members was Advocate George Bezos, whom we all know had been the advocate that defended Mr. Nelson Mandela. And the Federation for a Sustainable Environment has been recently listed by the news media as being one of the most prominent NGOs in the mining sector. The main business of the FSE is to represent the interest of ordinary people in understanding and defending their constitutional rights, but also not only to focus on single species conservation, but rather on um, the conservation of environmental um, health and also functional ecosystems for future generations, and then also to take legal action, um, that is to hold decision makers accountable in situations where development may have a negative social, economic and environmental impact on, uh, and would affect people and the environment, and also to ensure that the total cost of the use of natural resources, including all externalized and long-term costs of maintaining ecosystem services to local people are provided for and borne by the project. Wow, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of vision, that's a lot of mission statements that you've got there. Yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> well, it's been read from our constitution, but I can just mention perhaps that we've been successful in achieving most of these goals, also successful in a number of court cases, such as the Carolina court case, where more than 17,000 people were faced with an acid mine drainage dilemma. Mm. <laughs> yes, a, a lot of things. You've had a lot of success. It's been quite interesting having a look at your website. But I definitely hear what you're saying about the, the issues of single species. And there was yes. a piece in the paper just recently about how everybody going sort of, oh, shame about panda bears when, you know, they're not necessarily the the only thing that, um, you know, the planet is, is suffering from. You know, not least rhinos, elephants, all that sort of thing. But it's it's the other sort of issues, the people issues that you're already con- that you're the brown you, issues, the brown the issues, as you call them. Yeah. But Mary, what's what's interesting about this is why you? What, how has this happened in your life? What what triggered it for you? Well, it was triggered by narrow self-interest because the multinational oil company Shell wanted to build their highway petrol stations, that is the flagship petrol stations opposite my home in Bryanston, Santon. And for um, seven years, I was involved in opposing the development. So it was basically narrow self-interest. But uh, eventually I was successful um, uh, and I was asked to speak at the preamble of the World uh, uh, the, um, the Sustainable Development Conference in 2002. And uh, I think that because of the news media coverage of my, my activism and my successful activism against uh, the Royal Dutch Shell Group, it gave me a sense of grandiosity. I felt that I was an important person, mm. and, uh, uh, and that is where basically my environmental activism uh, commenced. I think uh, it, uh, it made me realize that even a small person, an uh, old woman, can make a difference. And then I was uh, asked to present the 35 landowners of one of the richest gold mines that ever existed. Uh, and and uh, well, that, then I became aware of the uh, long-term impacts 
uh, and also the devastating impacts of um, gold mining on ecosystems, on water resources, and also on the soil and on future generations. You've clearly learned a lot, and you're also quite sort of self-deprecating. I mean, you say it was all narrow self-interest, really, that got this all started. <laughs> when you were when you were standing up there for seven years, you know, um, fighting the giant of Shell, did yeah. you was it was it really self-interest? Did you just not want them blocking your view, or did you have any environmental under, or understanding of what the environmental impact was going to no, be? No, uh, I think that my interest is more not just the greeny interest. Uh, my interest is more social and environmental justice. In other words, where I feel that there is not an equitable balance, where there is perhaps ethical issues involved, moral issues involved, uh, justice issues involved, that is when uh, I I feel I'm triggered. (laughs) And that is when I stand up for what I believe uh, is morally correct and ethically also acceptable. Uh, I feel it's extremely important, this intergenerational equity. Where there is no notion of this intergenerational equity, we really are depriving our children and future generations of also a right to our resources. Talk about standing up for the people who, you know, who uh, for, for the next generation and standing up for people. But, but you know, very often the problem is in our own hands. Not yes. always, but there are things that we can do ourselves. It's not just the big giants that, yes. uh, you know, that that are the guilty party. Yes. Uh, yes, I do feel so. I, I do think that we can, perhaps the first step would be to acquaint ourselves with the legislation, with the laws, in order to capacitate ourselves to know what are our rights and how to defend these rights. Because often with these large developments um, uh, and also the developers or even mining companies, they come in and often we are then confronted with many issues, many challenges, many impacts, many uh, risks and hazards, and we are unacquainted as to how to be become involved in these issues. I may just mention here that uh, our constitution allows for a participatory democracy. Uh, It allows for access to information. It allows for administrative justice. So it's dependent on on people to let their voices be heard because we definitely can make a change. Yes, you really are an activist. Um, One who's been named, or the the Federation has been named as one of the most influential one of those influential people or uh, organizations in mining in Africa. It sounds to me rather more like you're a thorn in the flesh of the mining industry. (laughs) But I must just mention that uh, I also am allowed to enter some of the mining sites. For example, the mining company Gold One allows me onto their mining site. That is where the asset mine drainage had been decanting for 10 years with devastating impacts. So I'm allowed onto their land. Uh, They even fund some of the tours and workshops that I conduct with uh, very influential people, such as, for example, the World Health Organization, the International Mine Water Association, Harvard Law School, uh, which had come on a regular basis, the Kiel University of Germany. And I've just recently done a tour with the United Nations uh, African Delegation so that shows that mining companies that are progressive are willing to work with activists, 
I'm also uh, 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 sponsored by the mining company Sebanya Gold, which allows me to conduct workshops with communities in order to determine what are their desires for the end land use after mining. Because often after mining, the land is degraded. There are gaping holes in the, the ground, polluted rivers, and unenriched and disrupted communities. So there are some mining companies that wish to see paradigm shifts in order to leave communities enriched after their closure. Just whilst we're on the subject of um, the mining, and one thinks of acid mining drainage, which is, you know, potentially a huge problem. Are you, do you wake up fearful? Do you, do you see that this problem can be solved? Yes, the problem can definitely be solved because we have the technical ability to solve the problem. Um, I mean, there are many uh, treatment technologies for acid mine drainage. Anglo Coal is currently using reverse osmosis at the Imalachleni plant, uh, treating acid mine drainage within the Mpumalanga coal fields. However, the matter is a political decision, uh, and many of these very, uh, I would say, eminent uh, um, uh, academics uh, are currently withdrawing from the process because of the political intervention. I also want to mention that with regards to the cost for the treatment of acid mine drainage, the proposal to deal with the cost, I sit on the Department of Water Affairs Steering Committee for the Long-Term Treatment of Acid Mine Drainage, and the cost for the treatment of acid mine drainage, that is the desalination of acid mine drainage, has been estimated at 6.5 billion rand for the capital expenditure and 750 million rand per annum for the operational uh, and the, uh, uh, the maintenance cost is of 250 million rand per annum. The problem is therefore the cost because the uh, funding model that has been proposed by the Department of Water Affairs, the threat to all of that is that the public will have to carry the cost. And that, of course, is extremely unpalatable because the public <laughs> did not cause the pollution. So for communities and the environment, the mute environment or future generations to carry the costs or the impacts of acid mine drainage is, is inequitable, it's unfair. Uh, and so the, um, the proposal by government for a public-private partnership is problematic for us because it would imply that the public will have to carry the costs while private companies will profit. So there will have to be an apportionment of liability and at the moment that apportionment of liability report is confidential. We do not have access to that. We do feel that the last men standing, in other words, the last gold mining companies that are currently operational, it would be unfair to hold them responsible for more than 120 years of gold mining by more than 120 mining companies. So the retrospective application of the polluted base principle ought to be considered. Yes, I suppose the word fair is a difficult one here, isn't it? Gosh, so many, so many issues there, Mariette. Very best <laughs> of luck and congratulations <laughs> on the amount of knowledge you have managed to acquire. And I bet that's just a fraction of it. 207 NGOs. Um, of that, very briefly, how many of those are, South, of, are local, South African? Uh, you mean of the uh, NGOs who yeah. we represent? Yeah. We are affiliated, not only representing, but affiliating and friends of most of the NGOs. Like recently, I've 
done a workshop with the National Union of Mine Workers and WWF. Today, for example, I um, was with a uh, Unilever and, and VESA. Uh, we work with the Legal Resource Centre. The Legal Resource Centre uh, assists us with most of our legal cases. Uh, the Centre well, of yes. Environmental Rights also assists us with legal interventions. Well, I tell, I, tell you, I tell you what I'm going to do, Marriott. I'm going to give out your website, because, or at least I'm going to ask you to give out the website, because I think <laughs> if anybody wants to know more, that's certainly the place to go. It's yes. www.fes. F-S-E. Uh, sorry, F-S-E dot org. Dot org. Lovely. Yes. All right, congratulations, eh? Well done, and, and do keep up the good work. Thank you very Lovely. much, and thank, thank you. you for this opportunity. It's to an talk absolute to pleasure. Well, it, there you go, Marietta. Leafering can, it may have started off with as narrow self-interest, but it's certainly become broad on knowledge ever since. www.fse.org.za. That's Federation for a Sustainable Environment, fse.org.za. We're listening to the Enviro Show, and what we're talking about right now is the SAB Environmental uh, Environmental Media Awards. And the man who swept the board, as they say at the Oscars, was Sipo Kings of the Mail and Guardian. He won merit in the new media and online. He was the winner in the print category and also the winner of the Makubu Ntombela Ian Player Cub Award. And he staggered off with a whole pile of framed certificates. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Sipo. On his page on the MNG, it says, Sipo Kings is the person the Mail and Guardian sends to places when people's environment is collapsing. This leads him from mine dumps to sewage flowing down streets, a hazardous task for his trusty pair of work shoes. Well, we've got him on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Sipo. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Oh, I'm excellent, and congratulations. Were you a Thank proud you, a proud man or what? Yes, well, I don't know if it's sunk in yet, because we're still at work, so I haven't had time to digest. Oh, well, they should have they should yeah. have given you the day off, I would think. But uh, having well, shared... I, I, yeah. I was hoping for that, but, you know, if you, if you need to go out and do good journalism, you can't stop, eh? Exactly, exactly. But now you do a whole lot of things. I mean, you won in three categories there, not least because you, you got the uh, the Cub Award on account of having been less than five years in the business. But you also got the online and new media as well as print. Just describe for us your roles or, or describe for us, you know, your uh, what a day in the in the life of Sibo Kings looks like. The end of life. Um, well, the, I suppose the thing is because of online, every every day you're supposed to be filing, so it's like a daily publication for the online side. But then for the newspaper side, we try our very best to go off to strange and interesting places to meet people who are on the cold front who are experiencing the worst of the worst environmental damages. So we get to travel a lot. I'd say most of my days are spent in a car, really. Yeah, yeah which is not terribly good for, I mean, your carbon footprint no, mustn't, yeah. mustn't look too, <laughs> too healthy. <laughs> So uh, you know, in, I see about the online, one just has to sort of get it pumped out there very, very quickly. But in terms of the other stories, how do you get them? I mean, have you got antennae that, that take you into all these places? Do people come to you? I, I don't know if you were able to hear any of what Mariette said, but, you know, if she's to be believed, there's an awful lot of stuff going on there, a lot of injustice happening. Do you wait till the injustices come to you, or how does it work? Well, we're lucky in that a lot of, like Mariette's organization and, like, a lot of the other NGOs will come to us and say, listen, this is happening and that's happening. And it sort of gains critical mass. So when you do a story about, let's say, a mind dump or visually or places, and then communities in 
as far afield like Northern Cape or whoever will get up to the Mail and Guardian and read it. And you'll get phone calls from people saying, we've got this problem. Do you want to come and like, help us? Do you want to talk to us? It builds its own momentum that way. And word gets out. The, the thing is, and I'm sure as a, as a good journalist, you it's not just about going to get the, the sorry story of the people who are suffering. You've got to get the balance. You've also got to get your head around the whole thing. What Your yeah. knowledge of the environment, broadly speaking, where did that come from? Reading. Mm. Read everything. Mm. Is that what all journalists do? You should absorb as much knowledge as you possibly do all the time. Yeah, and sort of synthesize yeah. it and try to make sense of it. But I think that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think that you, you had a, a sort of a developmented, developmental-minded parents who uh, had some input in your, the way of thinking. Well, yeah, because I was lucky to grow up with, you know, living out out in, I think it's in nature, but outside Joburg, outside the city. So, yeah, more of the affinity for these things. Yeah. Yeah, so on that, and then you're reading those on top of that. When you joined up with the M&G, what, did they say, okay, we want a green man a hop on board, Sipo, or did they, or, do, you know, has it sort of come that way just because you are interested? Well, I did the internship, and that half issue that the environment reporter left, and they saw that I was interested in that piece, so that's when they, they gave me the job. So, so you were sort of uh, the right man at the right time? Yeah, right now. And it was interesting that the way the M&G looked at it was specifically, you have to look at the brown issues and the human beings who are on the environment side because that's how you, I don't know, that's how you convince people it's a problem if you show other suffering and other people living with the problem. Yeah, so you've got your your line's not great, but I'm I'm sort of getting it roughly the thread, but um, Sipo, I didn't, didn't I haven't read all your stories, but I'm looking online. I see that there are many. Which ones did you enter, and have you any idea which ones triggered the judge's interest? I think print one. It was the story about Riverley, where there's a community living right next to a mine dump. That's been mine. It's right next door to Soccer City. And what was the outcome of that, or is it an ongoing... Well, it is an ongoing story, isn't it? Yeah, it is It is an ongoing. I mean, there's... Yeah, it is ongoing. There'll be proceedings against the mine, maybe, in court, and... Yeah. So it's quite important... Yeah, I suppose, just lastly, I'm thinking of Rivoli, and I'm thinking of Chris Van Vake, who, of course, made Rivoli famous with his book, Shirley, Goodness and Mercy. Uh, a, yeah. a story like that, do you keep popping back? <clears throat> Excuse me, do you keep going back to sort of find out what the latest is? Yeah, definitely. And Rivoli is, a, I, mean, I suppose it's convenient for us it's in Joburg, but it is, we've gone about four or five times and we've done stories about the solar geezers. So you really get to explore the community and look at all their issues and flesh them out into more national problems. Just lastly then, um, <clears throat> the, thing about, the thing about what you're doing, it either makes you terribly depressed or terribly happy that you're uncovering it. You know, you're the candle bearer. At the end of the day, do you think, oh, gee, you know, we're never, we're never going to see the next century because it's not going to happen, or do you feel quite hopeful? I don't know. I, I don't think you can do this job without being too cynical or too depressed. It is quite a... Everything you do is very depressing, but then you meet people who are living with the problems and adapting to the problems, and that gives you hope that human beings all have changed and survived. 
But they, animals, not so much, and yeah. nature, not so much. Yeah, well, I think it's our job to look after them too. Yeah. Sipo, lovely. Get back to work, but don't work too late. And thank you very much, and congratulations on all your, on all your trophies. Wonderful. Take care. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks a lot. Bye. Cheers. Sipo King, sorry, sadly, not such a great line, but I hope you could hear him. And I hope that you'll read him. You'll find him in the Mail and Guardian. And well done for him for winning all those wonderful awards at the uh, SA Environmental uh, Media Awards that we're talking about. Well, we've got two more. Um, we've got two more winners. Next, of course, we're moving on to a favourite medium. Well, it's, I say it's a favourite medium. It's my favourite medium, in my humble opinion. It's also a favourite because it's an ideal medium, I think, for environmental issues because it's it's a way in which people can express in their own words, interact, share in the here and now what they feel about those issues. And it's radio. Well, in a minute, we're going to be talking to the winner in the radio category. She's SABC's very own Minoshni Pile. But before we do that, we have on the line the Merit Award winner. She's Notitle Zwane. She's with Kwesi Radio, which is a community station. And she has, as I understand it, a daily hour-long show in the early evening. Well, we got her on the line. Hi, Notitle. Hey, how are you? Excellent. How are you? I'm fine. So you must have just come off the air yourself, or maybe not. Tell us a little bit about your show. What time does it get aired? And uh, what's it called? Uh, my show is called Amaba Lengwe. Amaba Lengwe, which yes, means? Yes, Amaba Lengwe, which in translated mean highlights of the breaking stories of the day. Okay, okay. Yes. So yes. it's not just about environmental issues, it's all sorts of things. Yes, it's a current affairs. We, we feature data, environmental stories. Okay. And how do you find the, the environmental stories? I mean, as a community radio station, focusing on what's happening directly in your area? No, we, we used to visit the nearest places, uh, farmers, etc. So you actually go there and find the stories and see what people are talking about? Yes. What are the big issues in the area? Okay, the the story this this is one it was the which was achieved by the the Newcastle municipality as the greenest town in KZN. This compensation was called by the Greenstown. Yeah. That I did the interview with No Magnene, who was the spokesperson in, on behalf of the municipality of the Newcastle. The aim of the project is to encourage the people to take to take care of their environment. This interview was featured in the Evening Canada Affairs program, which was which I I present on Monday to Friday at half past five to half past six in the afternoon. Okay. After interview, I had the interaction with the listeners, which I wanted to hear from them how they what what role they play to to keep their towns clean. Mm. Yes. And what did they say? Did, were they were they keen to come forward? Yes, they. They left the show. But what did they say? I mean, what do they, did they say, okay, I do this, that and the other to keep the my town clean? I mean, were they, are they quite proactive, did you find? They say they always keep their towns clean. Uh, yeah. Do you think, do you th is that the sort of the general experience? I mean, as you travel around and you meet people, do you think that environmental issues are top of the mind for people in the, your community? No, uh, according to me, I have the great, I have the great interest in stories that involve in the environmental stories, and I make sure that the story in my current in my current affairs, I always feature that story that's related to to the environment. 
What triggered your interest in the first place? I'll come again. What triggered your interest in environmental matters? I'm interested in environmental stories. Why? Why? Mm. In, in school, I did uh, agriculture. Then uh, I learned a lot about the environment. So you're you're a bit of a natural. Well, not say very well done. And what's your dream? What do you would you like to see more green issues on your station? No, I'm always encouraging the my colleagues to keep the environment, and they they like the environment. Okay, so have you started a recycling program at your at the office? Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Well, well done. Fantastic on your award. Take care. Uh, okay. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Not Ishlezwani, she's with Kwezi Radio and she has a, a, a programme between 5.30 and 6.30 every evening in environmental matters. Big for her, it's something that she is obviously close to her heart. And don't forget if there's something close to your heart in environmental matters, you are so welcome to let us know. Maybe, I don't know if you live in the greenest uh, town in the, in the country, but if there's something going on in your town, let us know, because I think it all starts at the grassroots, doesn't it? You can let us know and give us a call, 0892 10 2010, or you can find us on Facebook. Facebook, probably the easiest way. We're at uh, the Enviro Show on SAFM. And if you want to pop us an email, enviro at safm.co.za. Well, around about this time, we usually have what we call a green goodie. And I suppose we have got ourselves a green goodie. She's uh, one of the winners, but she walked off once again with an award. She's SABC's very own Minoshni Pillay. And she won, uh, she won, uh, the, she was the winner in the radio category. And we've got her on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Minoshni. Good evening, Nancy. It's such a pleasure to join you this evening. Yes, well, it's just a pleasure to have you again because you're becoming such a you're becoming a serial winner. Um, I hope the run of luck continues. Let's just say that. Let's <laughs> hope that it continues throughout the lifetime. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, you and I spoke actually last year around about this time because you were a winner. You actually won the Cub Award last year. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Good, good. I don't know if you heard me talking to Natisle that you know about when it all started for her. When did it all start for you? I mean, did the, are you the the green go to girl, or is it something that you has developed more recently? Um, I think I have become the green go to girl um, in KZN. Um, it's it's. I think you know as I was uh, saying to you at the awards. It's something that you need to have a passion for because when you have a passion for for an issue, be it politics or the green scene, uh, it makes it, it makes you want to write that story better. It makes you want to, you know, fine tune your interviews, and it's really something you can be proud of. Um, so you know, going to work every day and loving what you do is a rarity. It shouldn't be, um, and I think that's the clicker, really. Yeah. You know, the thing about green stories or green or brown stories is that they usually only get heard when there's a crisis. You know, there's acid mine drainage or something or another rhino has been shot or something awful has happened. They're not really top of the list in terms of priorities. And I mean, how many times have you heard hard bitten journalists doing amazing stories and then it all gets pushed to the back page because somebody had a baby or celebrities got divorced or something like that? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Do you, do you feel exactly. a little bit frustrated by the lack of interest? I think it, it can be frustrating, um, but I think it's also up to journalists to really push the boundaries when there isn't a big green or brown story happening. Uh, you know, oftentimes it's up to us to go and find a story. Um, 
because we don't we don't always and I think that's the way we can get um, you know more environmental awareness out there is by going into communities and talking to them when there isn't a big conference happening or when ESCOM isn't you know increasing the tariff hikes and then there's a big outcry. I think we really have the responsibility uh, when we have our downtime, which we all do, um, and that's the time when we really need to tap into our sources and tap into our communities because really good work is happening in communities by really dedicated individuals and NGOs, and it's just up to us to see that as an important issue. As you say, a celebrity having a baby, that makes news headlines, um, but it's up to us to sometimes um, push the boundaries and, you know, make environmental issues the lead story even more. Yeah, push the boundaries, but also think out of the box. I mean, you know, we were talking about... um, it's usually just a bunch of old recycling and there's all sorts of issues that keep coming up again and again. But the, it's about finding other stories. And it seems to me that in your in your short years there as, as a radio journalist, you've developed quite a, a green network of of people. How does that work? Do you have you got a sort of a black book or a green black book where you keep a, keep an eye on who's doing what? Um, you know, I think every journalist has a little black book with their sources and their contacts that cannot be divulged. Um, but, you know, so that network is very important. I, I agree with you 100%. But I also think what's equally important is having a passion for it. I think environmental journalism is one of those aspects where you really have to believe in what you're reporting. Uh, you know, not all the time will we go to work and want to do a story, but... Um, I don't know. Saving saving the planet is something that is everyone's responsibility, but you have to have a passion for it. And I think um, once you do, that shows in your work that that is as important. You know, just staying informed for your for your own mindset oftentimes brings the stories to you. Reading other publications, listening to other forms of media is also a really good way to think, ah, you know, that's a really interesting community project. Let me, let me take a visit there. Yeah. Um, so that, I think, is as important as having a strong, solid network. And, and I suppose the idea really is to ignite other people's passions, but also it, it must be very satisfying to be able to bring about change and know that not only are you drawing attention, people's attention to situations, but perhaps making a difference. Um, of your the pieces that you entered, there were two in particular where it really felt like you had made a difference. I think you took a visit to a young man who was a game ranger. And yes, um, that was quite story. sad, actually. We mm. visited, a, a, you know, one of the reserve camps of Shishliwi Amphalozi in northern KwaZulu-Natal, uh, and we actually went in undercover because we weren't legally, um, you know, allowed to interview him because he, you know, was, was not speaking to his union. But basically, he and his team of rangers at that reserve uh, were responsible for, you know, protecting the rhinos and going out on patrols. But the conditions that they were living in, the uniforms or lack of uniforms that they had, um, and lack of equipment, patrol equipment. I mean, I remember him telling me, I guard the rhinos by moonlight. He doesn't even have a torch. Uh, that was quite sad. But what was really great was a follow-up done by the MEC for Agriculture in KZN, uh, Meshach Khadebe, and he heard our story, and he came out uh, and called a meeting with the rangers at that particular reserve and Ezemvelo Wildlife, who are the authority, uh, and they tried to find a way forward. It was quite... And we went back for that meeting, and we followed up. Uh, and it was wonderful to see, you know, um, leadership in a province hearing your story and going forward and trying to do something about it. Now, unfortunately, 
that did not have a happy ending. But I must also say that's not the situation at all the reserves. It was just, you know, at a few isolated reserves. But nonetheless, it's still an issue. When we think of rhino poaching, we think of surveillance methods and uh, breaking up syndicates. And we seldom look at the, ra- the ranges that are responsible for protecting the rhinos and the conditions that they have to operate under. It was quite a devastating story, and it really affected us personally when we when we did visit the camp. Yes, yes, I'm sure. I mean, the nice bit is that uh, the MEC actually heard your piece and followed up on it, but it also makes you appreciate the complexities. We tend to think in terms of the good guys and the bad guys, but actually there's an awful lot of grey stuff in between. It seems to me that you may be one of a very few radio journalists doing this sort of work. Do you, do you think that there, I mean, we're talking about you being the go-to girl. Is anybody else interested in, in green issues or do they say, oh, send me Noshni? I think it's, it's um, you know, it's a combination of the two. And as I mentioned to you at the awards, it's also really about having a strong support base from your editors. Um, you know, journalists, as you know, we, we have diaries and we can pitch story ideas, but it's up to our editors to trust, to, to all editors in all newsrooms, to trust your journalists and say, uh, I see the vision you have for the story and go out and, and see if you can make it work. And I must say, I'm very blessed. I have editors that allow me, uh, and, you know, my passion is environmental journalism. They allow me the leeway to go out and explore and, you know, hopefully um, come back with a successful story. It's, is there enough of it? Would you like to see more? I don't know how much uh, I don't know how much time you have to, for listening to other radio stations, but do you think that there there is room for more? I mean, is it something you would like to encourage other young aspiration aspirant journalists, perhaps to to take a green slant? Absolutely. I mean, you know, sometimes environmental stories get lost with the big political stories and the big economic stories. Um, but as I say, I don't think it's something that can be forced. Of course, I'd love more journalists, uh, especially radio journalists, because it's such a beautiful medium for telling the environmental story. I'd love more to come on board. But um, I think you can really make a success of it if you truly believe you know, in the story that you're telling. Uh, and I guess that goes for any story, be it politics or economics. So uh, everybody come on board, I guess. If you have a passion for it, that's all you need, really. I was just talking to Sipo. Unfortunately, it was not such a <clears throat> sorry, not such a great line. But I was saying, just describe a sort of a day in the life. Describe a day in the life of going out and getting a story, because one would like to think that actually it's quite uh, it's quite exciting. It's quite fun. It's a bit of an adventure going and getting those sort of stories. Give us a, a day it in is, the life. It is exciting. Um, it is exciting when it works out. <laughs> Many people see the life of a journalist as being, you know, this glamorous. A day in the sun. Uh, it's actually long hours, long days, um, long drives, and getting back to the office and having having to cut, you know, um, hours of sound and you know writing your script. But there is reward, as you say. For instance, that game ranger story. There was great reward um, because we came to an impasse, and you know there was a solution, and that really is the reward. Um, you, I think you've just got to put your heart into it, throw your story out there, and. That needs to be your reward at the end of the day. Well, you also got a reward. You got a you got a, a, a lovely frame certificate, and you got um, some money. Yes. I hope. What does what does that mean to you? What are you what are you going to do with it? You're going to sort of further your career, further your studies, or what? Um, furthering one's studies is always something that I think we're never too old to do. Um, I would love to travel a bit. Um, I really enjoy that, um, and I know it sounds um, quite cheesy, but it's 
for me, it's it's not um, entirely about the money, although that was very pleasant. <laughs> um, it really is about knowing, especially hearing Dr. Ian Clare speak at the awards. Uh, he gave such a poignant, powerful message about the responsibility that Green Warriors had. That's what he called environmental journalists. Mm. Uh, for me, that's really what it is about. Um, and that gives you the rumor to go out and do all the other stories that may not have your heart, but that you need to do as well. These are the stories that keep me going to work anyway. Lovely. Minoshni, fantastic. I'm sure we'll hear a whole lot more from you. We'll be keeping our ears open for everything that you do. Thanks a lot and Thank well done. Thank you very much, Nancy. You take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Minoshni Pillay, and she was the winner in the, the radio category of the SAB Environmental Media Awards. Lovely. What a great occasion. Well, thank you very much. As I say, cheers. Well done, SAB, for putting all that together. Thanks very much. Cheers to the team, an all-girl team, incidentally, Kim Winter and Lonhuabo Fani, and I'm Nancy Richards. And next up, it's going to a little bit of testosterone. We've got Stephen Kirker lined up with lots of music. Hi, Stephen.